This evening I'd like to speak about equanimity. And I'd like to begin by reading to you a small piece written by a mother as she described the profound inner shift she experienced when accompanying her three-year-old daughter on the journey through terminal cancer. She wrote, It was right then that it happened. It was such a strange and glorious thing that if I hadn't experienced it myself, I wouldn't have believed it was possible. I forgot that Hannah was sick. I wasn't even aware of having forgotten. If it was, if, it was if it was as if I had been sucked out of the story of cancer treatment, worry, and death. Hannah was playing in the dirt, and I was visiting with a friend. It was a moment of nothing special, of nothing going on. In a flash, whatever had sucked me up spit me out again. Even so, something felt different. Although I remembered now that Hannah was sick, some part of the stillness had remained. Later, I sat on the front porch, peeling away the layers of the night sky. The night sky was like my life, each layer a level of experience. No element or moment of it was more or less, better or worse than any other. Each was an offering to the whole in its suspended, inky stillness. Listening to the night, I felt poised on the edge of greatness, certain that the silence I was feeling was sacred. My sense is that there are moments in our life amidst the swirls of events, the joys and the sorrows, where we can find ourselves touched by intimations of a great inner stillness, a stillness that embraces the whole of life. And those glimpses can startle us. They take us by surprise. We can move in a moment from intense contractedness and preoccupation and worry and obsession to this place of poise, this place of stillness. And they are moments when we glimpse equanimity, whose nature really is unshakable balance and stillness. Equanimity is sometimes described as a spacious stillness of mind, described as a radiant calm, an inner poise. In other traditions, it's at times called a shamanic equilibrium. Yet this unshakable balance is not something that's somehow removed and separate from the crises and the traumas, the difficulties we can face in our life. but it is found within it. That poise and that stillness is found within our willingness and our capacity to meet all the moments in our life with equal respect, with equal compassion and sensitivity, 
And something is really asked of us to be able to meet our life with that equality of respect. I think what is really asked of us is our willingness to surrender, being for one thing and against another. We're asked to surrender our avoidance of one thing and our pursuit of something else. We're asked to surrender our seeking and denial. In the Tibetan tradition, equanimity is described as being equally near all things. And this quality of equanimity is one of the forerunners and part of the fabric of compassion. To be still and open in the midst of suffering, we are surely asked to be able to put down all our ideas of right and wrong, of should and should not. If we can do that, then we can meet sorrow and pain without fear. If we can put down our ideas of right and wrong, those are the moments when we're able to begin to deeply listen to the story of another or to the story of life. Because when we put down our ideas of right and wrong, of for and against, in many, in a very real way, what we are putting down is our own story about life. We're putting down our own story about another person and about ourselves. Because our ideas of right and wrong and should and should not, that's the story that holds all our history, our fear, our prejudices, and that then our minds begin to calm, our hearts begin to calm, and to become just a little more silent. Equanimity is the forerunner of wise speech and wise action. The responses that truly make a difference in this world, in this life, they're very rarely born of agitation, of fear, of craving. Mostly the responses that truly make a difference are born of stillness and openness and balance. Huineng once said, To what should we compare equanimity and wisdom? They are like the light of a lamp. Having the lamp, you can have the light. But with no lamp, there must be darkness, because the lamp is the basis of the light, and the light is the use of the lamp. Though there are two names, the basis is the same. The teaching of equanimity and wisdom is just like this. Now, this quality of equanimity we speak about so often in the practice, it's not a place, it's not a state, it's not something that we kind of attain and then retire somehow. Equanimity is an ongoing journey. I mean, just as our life really doesn't stand still for us, our life can never be frozen in time where nothing ever changes anymore then our equanimity has to be equally fluid. It needs to be a way of meeting our shifting life, 
our changing body and mind and all the events that come to us. Now, sometimes I know we we can feel that this inner stillness is somehow unreachable, that it's impossible for us, that it's just too hard, we can feel, to be balanced and steady amidst all the changes and the extremes in our life. But if we think that equanimity is hard, you know, we should just reflect for a moment and think of how much harder it is for us to be perpetually lost in the extremes of love and hate, of happiness and despair, of being for and against. This is actually what is really hard. Now, equanimity is not a word that we use really very much at all in our culture or in our vocabulary. We very rarely kind of get up and say to someone, well, you know, I've had a deeply equanimous day. (laughs) You know, I'm really just equanimous right now. I mean, when's the last time you heard anybody say something like that? I mean, there are other words in our vocabulary we use with much greater frequency. We say, I love this, I hate this. I really look forward to this. I really dread the next sitting. Oh, I'm really against that. You know, I really need this. I really want this. I'm really afraid of that. Oh, that's so special. (laughs) If you meet a friend you haven't seen in a while and they ask you how you've been, isn't that a sort of potent question? It's like this, it's a question that's like an open door through which we are prone to pour the story of all of the events that have happened to us and within us. They say, I've had an awful time. My life's so exciting. I've been so sad. You know, this has happened to me. I've been in love, you know, I've fallen out of love. How many times do we actually say, nothing happened? Nothing happened. That my mind has been unmoving, that poise and balance has been my home. I think we can almost feel as if we were to say something like, nothing happened. It would feel as if we were presenting ourselves as this kind of like really insipid, dull, uninteresting, and unexciting person. And we would probably then just be totally ignored. Nothing happened. It's said that when the Buddha got up from the Bodhi tree, he said, I gained absolutely nothing from complete, unexcelled enlightenment. (laughs) Isn't that an amazing thing to say? I gained absolutely nothing from complete, unexcelled enlightenment. It's that we totally cannot accept that statement. You know, we have spent 2,500 years making this enlightenment into this big, huge event that we have all been chasing ever since. What if the Buddha got up and said nothing happened? And what would that mean? What does it mean to say, I gained absolutely nothing from complete unexcelled enlightenment? 
One way of framing our life is to see it as an unceasing, almost unstoppable flow of events, one following on the heels of another. You ever heard that old song that says, Stop the world, I want to get off? We've probably felt like that at times. Because it's like our life is, is like this great river that starts with a tiny spring coming to the surface. And then it grows and grows in power. And in the course of that river, our, like our life, there are stretches where there's white water and rapids. There are places of calm that then turn once more into whirlpools. And then once more, those whirlpools can even out, only then to turn again into a waterfall. Now, we can't choose, any of us, to stop the river. Just like we can't stop the arising and passing events of our life. We can't choose only to have the stretches of calm, and we may not even be sure that we even want to. Nor could we choose to stay forever in the wildness of of the white water. In the events of our life, we all meet our own measure of praise and of blame, of approval and disapproval, of gain, of loss, of pleasure and pain, what are called in this teaching the worldly dharmas. It's really a term that's used to describe the events in our life that most lead inwardly for us to get lost in the extremes of happiness and sorrow, of despair and hope, of craving and aversion. Sometimes I think of them as being the kind of comfort and discomfort zones of our life. If we think about all of the events within a single life, what the Buddha called the 10,000 joys and sorrows, And so many of these events seem poised and created and designed to knock us off balance. We meet death, we meet illness, things fall apart, things change in ways that we don't always welcome. And it seems like these events are just there, engineered, to knock us off balance. And it's like we can't imagine, in a way, ever reaching a point where we have enough armor and enough defense to keep the world of events at a distance. We can't imagine any of us ever reaching a point where we could say, oh gosh, now everything's under control. You know, I'm never going to be startled by change again. Nothing's ever going to ambush me again. Order has been achieved. Imagine that's impossible, isn't it? The only things we can count on in this life is that nothing will ever truly belong to us. Nothing will stay and nothing will remain the same. You know, we sometimes have this experience. We give a talk and it's so interesting sometimes, you know, the next day, we could have half a dozen notes on our clip, and three will say, gosh, that was a fantastic and inspiring talk. And then we have three other notes that say, you really missed the point. 
praise and blame. You know, we gain approval, and oh, how we bask in it, and we tell ourselves how well we're doing. And then something else happens. We do something, and we feel ashamed as we're showered with disapproval. Our great meditation, the one we always longed for, our great love, our state of health, our youth, the things we believe in, the people we admired, all they can be lost. All of them can change into something less welcome. Pleasure can turn in a moment to pain. A woman, a mother in the town where I lived, one of the many heartbreaking stories that came out of the tsunami disaster. She said that after her son died, she got a postcard from him. And the postcard said, I'm in heaven. This is the best time of my life. Our changes between pleasure and pain are, of course, not always so life-shattering. But we see them happen to us all the time. We find ourselves delighting in the sound of a bird outside the window. And then it's drowned out by the garbage truck on the drive. Our delightful fantasy and plan in a moment can turn into a nightmarish obsession. But our pain can also turn to delight. We can be so find ourselves lost in an emotional storm, tirade, and we can go out in the forest. And in a moment, we can stand still and find suddenly all that burden of obsession, that burden of preoccupation of heaviness can fall away. And we can see the trees as if we've never seen them before. We can feel touched by the silence of the forest around us. Sometimes we think the pain in our body that we're sure is going to be there forever unexpectedly fades away and turns into a deep sense of well-being. One thing we encounter so often in this life is that our balance, our sense of balance seems so fragile. Our sense of balance seems so precarious. And yet, in the midst of the, all of these events, we still breathe. Our hearts still beat. We wake up in the morning. We go to bed at night. We remain present and alive. And I think sometimes we ask ourselves how our hearts can absorb this continuing stream of extremes and events in our life without being shattered. How can we find the equanimity that enables us to meet all of these events with equal respect, without being governed by any of them. How deeply can we understand that our efforts to control the uncontrollable are truly in vain and futile, and that they only make us suffer more? I think it is true that Equanimity asks of us to find the wisdom of a Buddha. Now, it is not only the outer of events of our life that ask us to find this radical calm, but also the inner events. 
I was here in November for a month, and I uh, had the privilege of uh, participating as an observer of your election. (laughs) And I was sitting with a few friends, as I'm sure many of you were, on the night of the election when the results started to come in. And, you know, we were sitting around and watching the TV and, you know, I was aware of all of us and certainly myself starting with this little flicker of hope that, you know, then gradually turned into despair and then it re-arose again and then it turned into sadness and frustration and then waiting for Ohio. And again, this sort of arising sense of optimism and possibility, only to have that dashed. And it was just so evident in a way that there were countless people around the country and countless people around the world watching the same event and experiencing the same roller coaster of ups and downs of feeling, yet polar opposite. You know, my despair was somebody else's elation, you know. My frustration was somebody else's satisfaction. My hope was somebody else's sorrow. All depending on our frame of reference. Our likes and our dislikes, our for and against. And we could ask ourselves, you know, does equanimity mean that we never experience any feelings, that we never experience any emotions. We could ask, does equanimity mean that we never feel sad or that we never feel happy or never feel fear or sorrow or joy? I don't think so. There's something, maybe some of you have heard this before. It says, if you can sit quietly after difficult news... If in financial downturns you remain perfectly calm. If you can see your neighbors travel to fantastic places without a twinge of jealousy. If you can happily eat whatever is put on your plate. If you can love those around you unconditionally. If you can fall asleep after a day of running around without a drink or a pill. If you can always find contentment just where you are. You are probably a dog. I don't think that equanimity really is the absence of feeling. But it's about being present in this world of feeling with balance. What is the wisdom element of equanimity? Because it's not a feeling. It is about understanding. The first wisdom element of equanimity is our encouragement and invitation to embrace the reality of impermanence. And our capacity to embrace the reality of impermanence again follows on the heels of our willingness to embrace the reality of impermanence. I mean, can we really truly understand that written upon every single thing that comes into being written upon every single thing that is born, is already the story 
of its passing and death. Our moments of fame, our moments of disgrace, our love and our hate, our pleasure and our pain, our gain and our loss, none of them are graspable. They are all equally held in the fabric of change and impermanence. Now, we know this on one level. And at the same time, it's a place where we have the, are subject to the greatest bouts of amnesia. Forever is a thought we have often. We either want something to be forever or we fear it will be forever. And without deeply embracing the reality of impermanence, that is when we get lost in the extremes of aversion and resistance, and we become equally lost in forgetfulness, finding ourselves expending heroic efforts to keep, maintain, preserve something that is already passing. We fall into the extremes of being for and against. And in doing that, that is a moment when we sacrifice our capacity to be equally near all things, to meet all moments with equal respect. You know, some years ago, IMS decided to change its motley collection of plates and cups, chipped, all those cups with little verses on, sayings on, the cracked plates, and replace this collection with, you know, the very simple dishes that we have today. Well, you would have thought it was a catastrophe. You know, we were deluged with notes, you know. What have you done with my favorite cup? You know, what have you done with my best plate? I've started my retreat upset. You know, what kind of standardization are you trying to impose upon us? Now, I might mention that all of this took place in a center which really gives ongoing emphasis and teaching on impermanence. (laughs) I think we don't always realize how much we rely upon the great and the small things in our life staying the same for us to feel balanced and calm. And we don't realize that until they change. And then we see how this subtle and sometimes not so subtle thread of grasping runs through our life. And of course, grasping is a denial of impermanence. Grasping is the delusion that we live in instead of understanding impermanence. Now, mostly we're really not very short of opportunities to contemplate impermanence, to contemplate beginnings and endings, births and deaths. We just need to open our hearts to a single hour in our day or a single day and ask ourselves, what is it teaching us and what have we learned today? And the one lesson that is stamped on all of the things, all of the moments we have experienced today, 
is that this too will pass. This too will pass. Now, understanding impermanence is one of the primary cornerstones of the cultivation of equanimity. Another of the cornerstones, I think, is understanding the nature of our intoxication. You know, if somebody offered you a lifelong free pass to the highest roller coaster in the world, Initially, depending upon your temperament, you might feel that this was quite a prize. And the first few days, you know, you might even really enjoy the thrill and the exhilaration, both the intensity of the ride and also the intensity of the ride of our inner emotions. And then imagine, if you had to do that day after day, hour after hour, week after week. I mean, don't you imagine that the thrill would wear pretty thin? Now, strangely, we've got our own inwardly offered lifelong invitation (laughs) to the roller coaster of our own inner events. And strangely, we don't always seem to lose our intoxication with riding the roller coaster of those events in our lives, outwardly and inwardly, in the same way. Now, intoxication is this kind of absorption into events. It is often a place where equanimity disappears. I think at times it really is useful to ask ourselves, What is it that draws us? What is it that enchants us? What is it that leads us to become so intoxicated with events? Why is it that at times we find ourselves even prowling the world looking for a new event to be intoxicated with? What are the extremes of love and hate, of gain and loss, of pleasure and pain, of events feeding in us. Now, I really do feel that it takes only just a little awareness for us to see that our sense of self, our sense of who we are, is also an event. Our sense of self is an event that arises and passes in countless forms, in relationship to other events. In a single hour, in a single day, how many self-events do you experience? Never mind the multiplicity of self-events we have experienced in our life. I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm depressed, I'm elated, I'm getting somewhere, I'm going nowhere. I'm young, I'm old, I'm anxious, I'm excited. We see this event of self arises and passes, co-joined with other events that arise and pass. The inner events of our emotions and our thoughts, our opinions and reactions, and the world of outer events are mutually codependent. 
they coexist. Sometimes the event of our self is flavored by an outer event. You know, there may be like a, a sudden noise in the hall that startles us. And we see the maybe event of the anxious or the angry self leaping to the forefront. Sometimes outer events are flavored by the inner events that are happening. You know, perhaps there's a memory that arises or an emotion of sadness or anger that arises. And we see how that inner event then flavors the outer events around us. You know, we say, oh, gosh, these people are all so mindless, you know, and when they take more care, you know, in the world, it's really not a very great place to be in. This arising and passing seems to happen out of nowhere, but it arises out of conditions. And sometimes I think a very good question to sit with and a very good question to contemplate is to ask ourselves, who are we outside of an event? Who would we be without the definition of an event? This is the source of our intoxication. Because I need an event to be someone. I need something to be happening, to be someone. And the thought of being no one is so unfamiliar and so initially unsettling that we resist it fiercely. And of course, there is no end to the events in life that offer us the possibility of being someone. And I think the short answer to the question of who would we be without an event to define us is that we would be equanimous. There's a Zen saying, it says, 10,000 flowers in spring, the moon in autumn, a cool breeze in summer, snow in winter. If your mind is not clouded, by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. The unnecessary things are our positions of being for and against, the likes and the dislikes, the fears and the anticipations. The unnecessary things are the changing definitions of self that are clung to. When we are able to put down the unnecessary things, then our equanimity becomes richer and deeper and sensitive, compassionate and free. I think that the third dimension that we bring mindfulness too, so that equanimity can deepen, is the dimension that Narayan spoke about this morning, the dimension of Vedana, or feeling, the second foundation of mindfulness. 
to know the pleasant as pleasant, to know the unpleasant as unpleasant, to know the neutral as neutral. It is when we are unmindful of Vedana, unmindful of feeling, that we take the first step towards intoxication, that we take the first step towards being knocked off balance. To cultivate equanimity, we're asked to cultivate it in the places where we are not equanimous. And this, those places where we are often not equanimous are in the spectrum of feeling tones that arise. Now, the pleasant feelings, the pleasant sounds and thoughts and tastes and touches and smells, there are many in our life. Sometimes not as many as we like, but many. You know, an equanimity does, certainly doesn't demand that we resist the pleasant, because those pleasant Vedana are often the root of joy and rapture and loving-kindness and appreciation. But those pleasant Vedana are also the places where craving can build its house. And then we become lost in the event. You know, it's like taking a walk in the woods, and it's pleasant. And we can know it is pleasant, and we can delight in it. But we can also take many more steps with our intoxication with the pleasant and with our story, you know, we begin to say, oh, this is so amazing. You know, woods here are so many amazing. You know, I, next time I come here, I'm going to bring a book on trees, trees, you know, so I can identify all these trees, you know. And maybe, you know, maybe I'll bring my lunch out here, you know, or I could even, you know, build a tree house and really live out here. Now, what has happened? You know, we have moved from that simple appreciation to the clinging, to the intoxication, to the surrender of equanimity. In fact, we have turned the pleasant into a project, and we've turned it into an event. There are probably many sources, more sources of unpleasant Vedana in this life than we would like. But one thing is for sure, is that as our dislike and our resistance will not shelter us from the unpleasant. You know, it's like you can get up in the morning and, you know, maybe it's snowing or it's raining. How quickly we move from unpleasant to, oh, you know, what a terrible place to build a center, you know. And we ought to move it to Florida. Next time I'm going to sit at Southern Dharma, you know. And, oh, next time I come here, it's only going to be in the summer. You know, much of our life is actually neutral. It's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And here, of course, is was mentioned this morning, our tendency is to space out and to disassociate. Now, what is really interesting to me is the neutral Vedana is the most difficult place for the sense of self to find a foothold because there really doesn't seem to be an event happening. You know, there's not something happening that I can appropriate as my own. But instead of actually seeing that, what actually we um, often are prone to do is to just tell ourselves that this is boring. We say, breathing's boring. Well, try not breathing. (laughs) 
I mean, we think nothing is happening. Life is happening. And the life that is happening is inviting our sensitive and respectful presence. Life is inviting our practice to deepen, to become more subtle. But we find ourselves so uncomfortable in the neutral because we don't know who we are if there's no event. So then we find ourselves wanting to discover or create an event to find more room for me to happen, for craving and aversion to play out, to let go of the craving, to let go of the aversion, to let go of the disassociation. Here we find equanimity. We find the radiant calm that illuminates and embraces all things. This sense that there is nothing lacking. What is being released in that equanimity is our capacity to meet our life, both inwardly and outwardly with respect. Now, finding balance is a practice. And to find balance, we really need to be very deeply interested in all those places where we get knocked off balance. The path of equanimity is certainly not separate from the world of suffering and chaos. I read a line recently, it says, a true hermit answers the phone on the first ring. But equanimity finds its root within this life. In all those moments when we can find really the courage and the wisdom to be steadfast and open in the midst of events, in the midst of change, in the midst of suffering, then we learn that we can embrace pain and catastrophe and change without becoming embittered or fearful or overwhelmed. We find compassion. And on a very much deeper level, this equanimity is really an eventless presence. An eventless presence in the world of events. A deep inner stillness that nothing can shatter. It's a poem by Rumi. It says, this human being is a guest house, every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Even if there are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. We have just a couple of moments quietly together.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.